Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. Hope you are having a great summer. I'm looking forward to mine. Uh, I am actually going to the defeat of Jesse James days in Northfield this year for the first time in probably over a decade. So I'm definitely excited about that. Hope you have some fun summer plans as well. It is so great to have Greg Brick with me today. He was employed as a hydrogeologist at several environmental consulting firms and taught geology at various colleges and universities over the years. He has published over a hundred articles about caves and won the 2005 Cave History Award. His work has been featured in National Geographic Adventure magazine and appeared on the History Channel. He has written multiple books, including Subterranean Twin Cities, Iowa Underground, and the book he is here today to get into, Minnesota Caves, History and Lore. Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Yes. So how did you get into cave exploration? What is it about caves that interests you? Well, actually, my you know my brothers were uh, my older brothers were uh, very much into the local cave scene um, when I was younger, and in the sense of going into the caves to drink beer and for mayhem, and my mother uh, strictly forbade me to. Uh, join in with those activities and there was a lingering prohibition there Uh, and it wasn't until I became a geology student at the University of Minnesota that I remembered that all again and it was like hey you know I I need some project you know when you're a geology major any other kind of major you need some kind of project to work on for a senior thesis or for term papers and uh, here was a fairly low tech thing that I could do, and that was to investigate the local caves. And so when I came into the, onto the cave scene um, in you know my undergraduate years at the University of Minnesota, um, I was already kind of a nerd um, in that regard. Uh, so I was looking at the geology of the caves from the very beginning, you know, the stratification in the sandstone, the, the different kinds of fossils you might find in the limestone exposed in the ceiling of the cave, uh, the water flow patterns, that sort of thing. And I think most of the people who are interested in or have said they've gone in caves in the Twin Cities, uh, they have no interest in that whatsoever. They are they are interested in, you know, it's just a, a place uh, of recreation. So I sometimes get ribbed in that regard with, you know, it's kind of a, for me, it's kind of an academic pursuit. And for others, it's the, uh, you know, just the pursuit of pleasure. What caves were your brothers drinking in? The names, I'm not sure. This is you know, one of the things is that the names of these uh, of our local caves, uh, I, I had to standardize those over the years, and, and I adopted the names that are on the 1962 TKDA fallout shelter survey. You know, TKA, 
TKDA is a local architecture firm. It's still with us. Uh, and they gave names to all these caves uh, that, you know, the, the caves that we commonly hear about. Um, and uh, my brothers weren't using the correct nomenclature. I, I don't remember from them from that age any distinct uh, their name, but I'm I'm sure it w- will be caves such as what I would call Banholzer, which is under Shepherd Road in St. Paul. I'm almost certain that was one of them because that's a big party cave. Uh, they also mention they did the one that the one they do recall actually is the the Ford Sand Mines. They were they said they were going down uh, into the abandoned mines. Uh, down there under Highland Park, where there's two and a half miles of sandstone passages that were carved out uh, for silica for glass making by the Ford Motor Company. Um, so that one I do remember. See, things have changed over time because uh, when the Ford Motor Company was still in operation uh, at that location, because now, of course, it's been, you know, they're you know, the, the entire site was wiped clean and they're building, you know, this, this nice community down there. When it was still in operation, those tunnels were carefully guarded by, you know, security details um, at, you know, the, the Ford security people. They didn't want people going in there. Um, and they were accessed at river level. If you knew where to go down there, you'd kind of sneak in uh, through the doors. Um, and uh, it was, you know, it, once you were, pa- once you were pa- it, as typical of other places, once you were past the initial layer of security, it was, you know, it was wide open. You didn't have to worry anymore. Uh, it was, they were definitely guarding it now. I think I haven't been down there in years, but I don't think it's there is that there's there's no Ford security obviously anymore. I I think there it's just um, I think it, it might be even wide open down there now for for people to explore. I'm not sure. So as long as we're talking about that area of St. Paul, there are a couple of spots I would like to ask you about. Uh, we've talked on the show about Fountain Cave before the home of the legendary Pig's Eye Perrant. What have your experiences been with Fountain Cave? And, and what's the situation with it now? Yeah, I, I more than anyone else in the world, I have spent time researching Fountain Cave, which, as you point out, was considered like the uh, you know the birthplace of St. Paul, where Pig's Eye Prant set up his so-called saloon there in 1838. Um, I built on the research of Alan Woolworth at the Minnesota Historical Society. He kindly gave me all his materials, and I found much more. Um, the cave is not the cave exists, but it is not accessible. Um, it is it is a remarkable cave in its time. Uh, it was just more than a thousand feet long. It was the longest natural sandstone cave in the state of Minnesota, and I it had the had four large rooms inside it, which in the Victorian times 
when uh, when this was you know one of the, the the stopping points on the Mississippi tour, uh, you know they were called parlors. Like there was Cascade Parlor where there was a natural waterfall falling in a room back there. Uh, in early in the early nineties, I spent a lot of time crawling up sewer pipes around that part uh, where it's it's near where Randolph meets Shepherd Road. Um, and I was not able to access the cave. Um, about once a year, I get an email from somebody out of the blue, somebody I don't know, that announces, you know, you know, just the giddy. Hey, I've discovered, I've I found Fountain Cave. I, you know, just just letting you know that. And um, <laughs> so. I, I had asked him what, you know, tell me a few details. What did you see inside the cave? Um, and I mean, this, immediately it becomes apparent that they're talking about the neighboring cave, which is Banholzer Cave, which is, it's just, you know, just been open for years. Um, or they'll have some other detail that indicates it's some other kind of uh, sewer void, but it's, uh, the, the, the characteristic signs of Fountain Cave, I know very well, uh, from having accumulated, you know, a, a, like a filing cabinet worth of, of information on this cave. And I, I can tell it to the best of my knowledge, no one has been in there despite the claims. Uh, they really, they, what happened was the, the, you know, the cave was, is open, Throughout pioneer days, and then up until 1960, when the highway department closed it uh, during the construction of Shepherd Road, uh, and by crawling through tunnels and and so on over there, you can get pretty close to it, um, but you, you can't actually can't actually get in there. It was funny because after the the publication of subterranean. Twin Cities in 2009, where I devote an entire chapter to Fountain Cave, um, it inspired like a wave of digging across the Twin Cities. As I find, <laughs> it's like one cave after another was dug open, and it it's like it's it wasn't one of the. I certainly had not intended that as one of the great unintended consequences of the book. But in any case, I devoted a chapter to Fountain Cave and going in there down into these tunnels years later that I had been so familiar with, um, I found that, um, you know, parties unknown had carved, uh, you know, deep, these deep drift tunnels, you know, through the sandstone trying to intersect the cave based on, you know, the maps and directions I had uh, in the book. And, I checked those all care. None, none of them connect with the cave, but it was just an immense amount of labor went in, into these, into these, uh, these, these mining activities. Wow. Uh, again, as long as we are in that, uh, general vicinity, the old Hollyhocks club, uh, now a private residence. It sits on South Mississippi river Boulevard in the twenties and thirties. It was a nightclub, uh, very popular with both rich St. Paulites and the criminal element. And there was supposed to be a tunnel that went from the river to the basement of the Hollyhocks Club. It was used to transport uh, booze uh, up and into the club. You, you are familiar with that story, I, I assume. 
Yes, I, I address that in my book, um, in, in Subterranean Twin Cities, um, in, in the chapter on the, uh, the, the so-called Fort Road Labyrinth. Um, I, it, in order for there to be a tunnel from Hollyhocks to the river, they had to have uh, go on, the passage would have to be in through the St. Peter sandstone first of all, because that's the 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 underlying the bedrock immediately underlying the hollyhocks. That is a Platteville limestone. It's really hard, and you know even the sewer department does not build tunnels through it. They'll build a shaft through it down into the underlying St. Peter sandstone, which is soft and easily excavated. And then just go horizontally. And so if for there to be a tunnel at the Hollyhocks, the probabilities are best that they would have gone through the St. Peter sandstone because it would have, you know, it would have been a straightforward pick and shovel affair. But what I found when I was investigating the, the sewers that lead uh, the sanitary sewer system that is there currently uh, all throughout that area and connecting into the, the Fort Road area. Uh, they basically surround that area and they do not intersect any tunnel like I was looking for them I and I had the address. I knew where it was, where it would be in the tunnel, you know, and I was looking for it and any kind of connecting tunnel as I describe in the book and there, and I didn't find ones. I, I that that renders it not impossible, but very improbable. So they would have had to really go down deep, maybe, and come over in the san way down below the sanitary system, uh, and burrow under that completely down out to the river. And I've I've looked along the river too, um, along the the <clears throat> the banks of the bluff there below the hollyhocks, and I've not found any. You know, it's so easy to make a claim yeah. that. You know, almost every speakeasy is supposed to have a tunnel. You know, it's just goes with uh, it just goes with the the ambience, and so no evidence that for that one. Okay, obviously, I need to pick up a copy of of Subterranean Twin Cities. <laughs> <laughs> now, now the next question I have for you, you, you have probably been asked about this many, many times, but I cannot help myself. You, you probably know what's coming. The legendary tunnel everyone wonders about in St. Paul, which was rumored to have stretched from the Minnesota Club through the bluff and into Nina Clifford's brothel. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm happy to talk about that one because I'm the only person that I'm aware of who has the solution to it. Um, because I have, uh, you know, I, Larry Millette. The, the journalist Larry Millette, a uh, friend of mine, has, has written widely about architecture and so on. Everyone knows him, uh, and and he wrote he wrote lovingly of the tunnel of love years ago. And you know, he didn't commit himself to any one theory. Um, but in Subterranean Twin Cities, I explained I looked for that one too, and it's pretty much the same situation as uh, for the Hollyhocks. Um, the thing is, is that there, from the 1890s on, there was this pre-existing sand rock utility system all over under the downtown area of St. Paul. So, is that, so what I described there is it, what the, so my, my solution to this is 
th- there was that if there was a tunnel of love, that it was basic. You don't have to have a, a special purpose tunnel running from, uh, you know, the the Minnesota club to the Bordello. Um, there because the utility system, tunnel system basically connects up all the buildings under downtown, uh, and there is a there's an entrance to City Hall in this Sandrock utility tunnel system, and so it would be the easiest thing in the world for people to um, go from City Hall. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone but <laughs> go over <laughs> to city hall over to the bordello or from the minnesota club or from any location that's connected up by that utility tunnel system uh, and so it's not so much a tunnel of love as like a whole network of love down there if if that's you know so that that was that's my solution to it i have you know i've been told i before I wrote Subterranean Twin Cities, there was somebody working at the Minnesota Club says, you got to come down here. There's a patch on the wall. And I went down there and, and yeah, there's a patch on the wall, but patch does not equal, you know, tunnel. And we got to break through that patch, you know, and then of course they weren't willing to do that. You got to go break through that wall and see, okay, does it connect with a tunnel in here? And so... That utility tunnel, the existing utility tunnel system kind of would intersect any kind of tunnel, any sort of other special purpose tunnel or, you know, tunnel of love coming through there. It's just, there's no, there's no, no reason for it to exist. I mean, why not just walk through this existing utility tunnel system, which connects up so many of the buildings under downtown and, and there's even labels in the tunnels, like okay, here's the old uh, Marine Insurance Building. Here's City Hall. Um, so you're, you're, you know, it's it's a pretty convenient uh, system where you can go, you can uh, travel through it, and his uh, prying eyes need not know where you've been. Uh, I'm sure you remember this, but just before the Science Museum was built, there there was a door in in the bluff uh, wall. Um, which had been sealed. It was revealed when they had taken down a building and it was exposed briefly before it was covered again with the construction of the Science Museum. Do you remember this? And, and do you know where that, that led to? Well, no, I don't. But the thing, the thing about it is whenever a, a building is built in the uh, downtown area, uh, they in, inter, whenever they enter the sandstone layer, they intersect these tunnels um and for example the one the one that i have photos of is when they're the, during the construction of the lawson building and all these tunnels you could see i mean just from standing outside you know looking through the fence into this con- this construction pit uh and who knows what the, i mean i'm sure a lot of them were the utility tunnel system that i just referenced others or could be something else you know uh, some other random void dug down there. Uh, it, there. I have an interesting newspaper article from 1914 that talks about uh, this sort of thing when they were when they were doing uh, you know some some road work. They found some mysterious tunnels. Well, 1914. I mean, that's pretty. You know, 
that's much earlier in the history of the city. And even in 1914, they're hitting other tunnels that are mysterious to them so early in the history of the city. But again, these things, you know, they're... Uh, there, there's a whole kind of separate network of voids that go around the, the foundations of the tunnels, and uh, they're, they're kind of like random kinds of voids. And I, I suppose that's, you know, that it could be any one of those. I was, I believe I was away at graduate school um, at UConn at that time when they were put, building this, when the this construction on uh the science museum was going on so i wasn't there to to, to you know i wasn't d- down there looking for these things at the time i wasn't able to access them now that the west publishing building ha- has been demolished w- was there anything found that you're aware of tunnel wise well when you See, I've been all through that utility tunnel system from the other side, you know, walking through it. And you would, when you'd come towards the West Publishing Bill, you know, you'd come up against brick walls and it's probably like the back wall of the publishing company. If you break through that wall, you'd be, you know, in inside their building. Um, and, you know, their sewers had come through, through from there. And uh, that's why they have concreted up that bluff. So, I mean, if, if, if they just tore that building down and just left it, I mean, there'd be all kinds of tunnels exposed. And I think that's where they've, you know, spent so much time shot creating the whole thing down there to, to cover up all those uh, embarrassing voids that show themselves uh, during any construction project, and especially there. So have you traveled through most of the tunnels under downtown St. Paul? And, and what is the most interesting thing you've seen down there? Yeah, you know, there was a time, it's it's unimaginable now, uh, but there was a time uh, before 9-11 when it, was, it wasn't such, it was an okay thing to go through these uh, utility tunnels. I did a sort of internship at St. Paul Public Works in the mid-1990s. Um, and the guys would come back, you know, from, you know, at the end of the day, they'd come in sewer workers and come back and it's like, Oh, wow. You, you're interested in tunnels. I, you you know, you got to go down and look at this, this, uh, you know, what we saw today down in, you know, at such and such an intersection that was really cool. Uh, and it, it was, it was nothing for them to suggest to me. Uh, to just go down there and have a look at it. Nowadays, that is such a foreign attitude. It's like no one would, no one there would say, "Hey, yeah, I'll just go down there and have a look." <laughs> that's uh, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the one of the there there's a lot of encapsulated history down there in that utility tunnel system under St. Paul, uh, the old street names that have, uh, are, are they, cause you know, they're, the tunnels are labeled, uh, you know, according to what street, uh, and you know, if, if a street t- changes name, well, they don't go down in the tunnel system and change the, you know, those, that just keeps the old name forever down there. And so the, and then, as I mentioned, with some of these, you see some of these, uh, like the Marine Insurance Building. Well, they, they are, 
I don't know what they ever became, but it, it's like a it's like a little encapsulated history uh, because you know that building's not above. You know, was obviously was the entrance to a building above, and there's some building there now, or maybe a parking lot is up there. Who knows? But it, it's sort of like it it's kept that old uh, that old name down there. Uh, and I found that really interesting. One of the, I think what the most stunning um, observation, though, that um, I, I made down there uh, in this utility tunnel system is that there was a utility tunnel system before the present one. Um, and you could see remnants of it up in the ceiling um, of the of the currently used tunnels. It was like they had dug a utility tunnel system in the, in the same sandstone layer but at a higher at a higher level and then for some reason later on they you know that was turned out not to be convenient or something and they constructed a new one down below but the, you can still see the old one with you know with with a different orientation it's like you've intersected a different cave system or something it has a different orientation. You can see, you know, you're, you're looking up into this, uh, you know, this, this other abandoned utility tunnel system above you. It, it's just really bizarre. Um, the various levels in the utility tunnel system under St. Paul are laid out according that it, like each utility has its own level. Um, for example, you have gas mains on one level and then electrical, you know, then electrical cables on another. And it's kind of important to separate those if you just think about it, because, you know, what if, what if, a, uh, what if an electrical line sparks when you're on the gas? You know what I'm saying? If you had gas mains in there, too, that could be a, a, a horrific explosion. Um, and then you have water mains on another level. The water mains typically are you know, on the on the uppermost level. And the interesting thing about that is where that it is basically using the geothermal heat of the earth to keep the water warm because they don't have to heat in in a Minnesota winter. It's you know you don't want want your your water main to freeze or water pipes to freeze and so by put, placing them in these tunnels they don't have to heat it's just the natural warmth of the earth which is what forty seven degrees Fahrenheit uh, keeps it you know keeps that that what the the water unfrozen uh, throughout an entire winter now the drawback on this is that people rare, the utility workers rarely go through these tunnels. So if you, if that water main suddenly spouts a leak and, you know, the, given the water pressure in these pipes is going to be substantial, um, the leak can go on for an awful long time before somebody notices it. Um, and, you know, you think uh, somebody, somebody would see it on a va you know, some, some gate water gauge somewhere. It just, it doesn't work that way. How it comes to notice is that, so after a long period of time of this, this leak, the water blasting against this soft sandstone, just like hydraulically excavating it, um, eventually a large enough void is created by this blasting water effect that it forms an arch which eventually intersects the street surface and then you know a truck will go over it and boom you've got a sinkhole 
Uh, this has been the this whenever there's a sinkhole, a sinkhole opens up in downtown uh, St. Paul. It's almost always due to that effect that 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 there had been a water main leak, uh, you know, thirty feet below the streets and just went unnoticed for a great amount of time uh, until the whole void intersected the surface. Wow. Are there any basements of destroyed buildings that still exist below street level? Yeah, yes. Um, you in one of the levels of this of this uh, the sand rock system under the city, you can you can crawl around the foundations of the whether the buildings on the other side of the wall and above that are, are still there i'm not sure this less it's probably all as i can see and perceive is what what what's below the surface there but i assume there's it's either that building or some other building and so you can you can come around the outside of the wall the foundation and you know go all even sometimes make a complete circuit around that foundation so obviously at one time that was an open pit to open to the surface they built everything down into it in the basement and the and the stonework and then they sealed everything up again but those little spaces outside the walls no one ever put the dirt back in those and so they're still there um, and these are these void spaces are heavily used by like rats and centipedes and all kinds of you know vermin down there um, and make their way through these uh, spaces. But so I, I you know so yeah I've seen a lot of foundations down there, but I on most of the time I don't know what building it is. So while we're still in St. Paul, I'd like to ask you about Carver's Cave beneath. Uh, Dayton's Bluff. It was a, a tourist attraction f for many years. Would you mind giving us a brief history of Carver's Cave? Yeah, Carver's Cave is a really remarkable case uh, for a number of reasons. But it, the thing is, it's it's such a short cave. I mean, it's just over a hundred feet long, but it has the longest history of any cave in Minnesota. And so, and I've seen this with other short caves around the nation and other states. It's almost like the shorter the cave, the longer its history. And Carver's Cave was the first cave in the upper Midwest to enter the literature, the published literature, when Jonathan Carver uh, came out 10 years before the American Revolution uh, came out here. And, you know, as one of many things that he described, uh, and one of those was, you know, the visit to a Carver's Cave. And the remarkable thing is that it still exists pretty, pretty much in its original form in the sense that uh, it was most noted for its subterranean lake. As Carver describes throwing a pebble in this lake in 1766, and he talked about the reverberations through the subterranean regions and, uh, you know, this, this dramatic pebble toss and that subterranean lake is still there today you would assume that that would have been drained away long ago um carver's cave that that said you know carver's cave just recently went through its 250th anniversary from the time that carver noted it and 
the, the fact that it's still there as a landmark in the upper Mississippi River that, you know, pretty much all the early European explorers noted is, is a remarkable uh, fact. Carver gets grief. Sometimes uh, Native Americans have rightly said, you know, that the, their name for this cave is Walken Teepee or the House of the Great Spirit. Um, and it was under one of their sacred burial grounds up on the above, above, you know, Indian Mounds Park above. Um, and for that reason, it had some extra significance. It's sort of like a, you know, a passage leading off under the cemetery, so to speak. Um, and they thought it, they, they, you know, they call it the house of the great spirit there. And I never understood that much till I actually spent a lot of time inside the cave years ago, um, just trying to see if I could get into continuing passage because the early explorers describe additional rooms that you can't find today. And so I, I think they're there, but they're just under the water's surface. Um, but going in there, I got to tell you, when you, you go in there alone, sometimes at night, as I did, I, one night was particularly terrifying. I knew there was something in the cave with me. It was like, um, because I, I, went, I entered the water and I, I had my wetsuit on uh, because it's very cold water. And I heard this, like someone slapping on the water way back. So I, you know, hey, is there anyone in here? Um, are you, you know you know, announce yourself, that sort of thing. And it wasn't until I heard this slapping noise several times over that I realized that I was, I had um, basically uh, bat, uh, trapped a beaver in the cave. So the beaver was trying to build like a little nest in there. And I, the, uh, and so the beaver was swimming around in this lake um, and getting, and, you know, since I had trapped it in there, it was getting frustrated. Yeah. And so I left the cave and, and, you know, left the beaver, you know, I was able to escape. Wow. Another time I went in the cave, got, got way back there. I saw, you know, I just, just the slapping of the waves on the ceiling of the cave. Cause the, the, the water in there in the back end of the cave is very deep. When you look into the entrance of Carver's cave nowadays, it doesn't, it's like, it looks like it's just this little crawling space. Um, but actually, when you get back in there, that lake is uh, six feet deep, and it's nearly up to the ceiling of the cave. And so you're in this water in this perilous situation to begin with, and then you hear the you know the just the waves kind of slapping uh, you know against the be- the ceiling of the cave in the back end. And then as you go around the bend at the end, you 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 leave there's you can't see the light from the entrance anymore, and it gets dark, and you get these kind of weird reflections on the water surface. So I can I kind of understood at that point. I think it's something like that that Native Americans experienced that led them to believe that this is you know a, a truly the house of the Great Spirit that there are spirits that live in this cave because this what are called in psychology liminal phenomena. These kind of like things at the edge of consciousness, like kind of like these kind of weird reflections that you're seeing and the, you know, these weird sounds of water. And so it, it is, it is definitely a special place, a place where, you know, this spring water comes out of the earth. And so I can totally understand why native Americans regard it 
uh, as a sacred place. And so it is now it has become, and rightly so, sort of like the showpiece of the the Bruce Vento Nature Sanctuary. And as I understand, they are the Walken Teepee Center, which is is um, is being built uh, under the auspices of the Lower Phelan Creek Committee. Uh, I guess they've they've just broken ground for that, uh, just not all that long ago. Um, and they're gonna, you know, have an interpretive center there to give people an idea of the the native heritage uh, of the area because they don't think of it as, as Bruce Vento. I mean, they, they to them it's it's you know a sacred place. It's you know, d- it doesn't relate to U.S. senators and Congress and that sort of thing. Yeah. So where exactly is the entrance? Is it accessible? Oh yeah, it's at the far end of the Bruce Vento Nature Sanctuary. Uh, so there's a, a whole series of gravel trails in there, um, and it's it's at the far end. The tra- gravel trails kind of loop around, and you can tell because there's the old rusted steel doors uh, that were in place in 1977 uh, when the city parks department had briefly opened it up. Um, and as a sort of like a belated bicentennial project and then sealed it up again. But with, you know, the water that's kind con- of spring water that's constantly flowing out of that entrance is washed away the sand. Um, and you can, if you're willing to get down on your hands and knees, you can go in there and, you know, take a peek at it. But again, any further than that is, um, you know, requires a wetsuit, as I found, because that water, even on a July day, you know, 47 degrees Fahrenheit, it is, you know, it feels very cold. Um, And uh, it is, it's not all, the cave is not all that obvious. And I know, though to me it's obvious, but I, (laughs) um, I spoke to someone else who said that they were just amazed that there could be a cave down at Bruce Vento Nature Sanctuary because they had spent like um, an entire summer in the youth corps just cleaning up down there and doing uh, and doing landscaping, and it was just and to find out that there's actually a cave, you know, in that very park was was just you know a complete revelation to them. So I guess it's not all that obvious to, to some people that there's a cave down there. One of the rumors I had heard about the cave years ago, Carver's Cave, was the suggestion that if it ever collapsed, the entire neighborhood sitting above it would turn into rubble, would would go into the cave. <laughs> have you heard that? Oh no, no. I I have you know, I have heard that uh that kind of story, but it's usually associated um with the the area over there at uh along plato boulevard and water street uh in saint paul where there was a there was a plan in the 1960s by the so-called condor corporation i i really love that it's just one of these great capitalist names the condor (laughs) you know this thing coming down with talons and just snatching you and snatching the money you know so they were they they had good intentions though they were gonna what they were gonna do is is hollow out the neighborhood under from the sands and and put those caves to use because now you know, they're completely useless except for wabasha street caves and a few others used for storage and they were and 
the it seemed like a great idea, but then an then an outcry began that indeed, as you say, that the entire neighborhood was going to collapse into that. The effect of like Carver's Cave itself collapsing is, I mean, the effect of that is nil, because it's at the bottom layer of sandstone. So much of that would that sandstone would just ravel together. So the 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 sand that Platteville limestone bedrock that's above that forms a cap rock above the St. Peter sandstone that forms I mean that can stretch a void like 60 feet across without collapsing um, and so you know the idea that Carver's cave which is much 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 smaller than that is is going to do anything is uh, it, it would have absolutely no effect except we would lose you know a treasured landmark and 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 sacred place on, on the Mississippi River all for all these years do you think it's a, a realistic concern that those caves along Water Street, if they collapsed, could cause harm to the people living above them. It, uh, it's uh, the Cherokee Heights neighborhood, right? Uh, no, not because um, the city has maps that show the caves in relation to property boundaries, the existing property boundaries. And there's only one cave that I'm aware of along Water Street, uh, the Becker Caves, that really runs up under uh, Cherokee Park significantly. And by the time it does that, there's 300 feet of rock above it between the surface and where that cave is. And even if if, if the whole thing were to collapse, it's not gonna that's not gonna propagate upwards and cause a collapse on the surface because um, I enough enough material would come together and uh, to, you know that to, in, to collapse into that void from from the side walls and so on that it would support be enough to support it um, so that that's that's really not it and the, and the other caves the average cave along Water Street Plato Boulevard uh, the, the average passage, well, you know, I, you know, from from Wabasha Street Caves, that that's made up about what half a dozen parallel passages that go back into the bluff. You know, so it's about 150 feet average. I, I, when I did the math on that, uh, they're they're not really you know wide enough and long enough to really be a significant threat, in my opinion. And I, it certainly never happened. When these caves have collapsed, yes, but that's when the city has come in and deliberately collapsed them, like that uh, so-called Cave 532 on Water Street, so-called from its address, number 532 Water Street. And after there were in some kids were in the cave in the 1980s, right after the mushroom growers uh, had been evicted, for the creation of the Lilydale Harriet Island Lilydale Regional Park, and um, they had put a boombox in there, and there was uh, lit a fire, and so there's some vibration and some drying of the sandstone, and there was a, a very minor collapse of, uh, but it was enough to kill one person and. Um, another person was, uh, you know, made a quadriplegic. And so the city to deal with this came in and really collapsed the cave. They, they drove up on top of it with earth moving machinery and just banged on that 
the, the ceiling and so on till that all collapsed in. Now, well, given the proclivities of, you know, people who want to go underground, uh, <laughs> you can still go in that cave and crawl among the collapse slabs if you want. It's an interesting experience, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so the cave has been collapsed, but there's still little voids in between the slabs, and people still use it to go crawling in there. <laughs> I do not have that proclivity. I, I get claustrophobic. I have to live vicariously through you. Oh, well, you know, I'm not that it's such a brave soul either. I mean, it's some of the, some of the, um, everyone has their claustrophobic limits. And it, for me, it's when I get in, when I, when the passage constricts, when you constricts my breathing so that, you know, you have to exhale to push forward, then inhale, then push forward. That's when I got to stop. Yeah, and yet there are people in this state, uh, you know, cavers like John Ackerman it doesn't bother him at all, and so I, I'm, you know, I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty claustrophobic when it gets to that kind of tight space. Yeah, I did want to ask you um, uh, that that area is known as is Mushroom Alley, right? A Mushroom Valley, yes, yep. Oh, Mushroom Valley, but there were also breweries in that area as well. Are there remnants of old uh, brewery caves in St. Paul? Yes. And that's, I, I mentioned one of them earlier, the Banholzer cave. That was the king of party caves uh, on the west side for years. Um, it's right under Shepherd Road. Um, and this, it, the reason it was such a popular party cave well, these sandstone caves in general, you know, they're night. It's like the beach, but your parents can't see you because you're underground, and so there's <laughs> there's no one to, you know, there's no restraints. You can go down there and and drink and whoop it up and, and play loud music and all that sort of thing, and you know, you can do that in any one of these sandstone caves. But what made Banholzer Cave, you know, particularly now this 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 former lagering cave, which made that one, you know, a special sort of um, party cave was that it, it had the magic property of having two entrances or shall we say two exits because <laughs> it's one thing you don't want to be trapped in a cave. The, the police, there's so much um, noise and music emanating at some points that it, it, it would come to the attention of the neighborhood and the police would go over there um, and they would try it with, in, you know, they would come in the cave entrance and the, the, the kids could just go out the other way. They could just leave and they were not trapped. Um, this was ultimately foiled, however, because eventually the Keystone cops kind of figured this one out. And then they stayed. They stationed people at both entrances, and then <laughs> finally they had some. Finally, you know, <laughs> then they came and raided in one end, and the, the kids all ran to the exit. Now well, that was blocked too. So <laughs> that's, that's one time they had the upper hand on them. Um, but yeah, they're 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 still. They said that that cave is um, is still open. The Yorgs Brewery Cave. Numerous attempts have been made by the city to seal these, but they're, you know, again, they're just, they just get dug open again afterwards. And so the Yurgs Brewery Cave is complete. That's over on the, you know, on the, uh, the other side of the river. 
um, down there, um, you know, along uh, Plato Boulevard. And so that's, you know, that's wide open, basically. Are there any abandoned, explorable streetcar tunnels in the Twin Cities? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I was out on the, I lived on the East Coast for some time. And I read this impressive book called The Mole People. You talk about these these people lived in the in the in the New York City subways, and you know I was so enthralled I went looking for them, um, and I'd never quite catch up with them because they thought you were the police when you were coming down, so they would kind of scatter ahead of you, and you you could never actually meet up with them and talk to them or interview them or anything like that. But then I I got this you know when I was in Minnesota again. I thought, geez, we don't really have those exact, such an abundance of kind of like train-related space uh, under the Twin Cities. We do have a little bit. Um, the You know, the most famous example is, uh, you know, the Selby Tunnel. It's the city of St. Paul famously is built on seven hills. They say that in many cities, including San Francisco. And guess what? San Francisco has cable cars. Well, they sought a similar solution here in St. Paul. St. Paul's got hills. Well, maybe if we have cable cars, they'll uh, go up. And when the th- what they wanted to do was make a, a more even grade, so they just ran this, they do- ran this, in 1907, this tunnel right through near, you know, what is today the, uh, the St. Paul Cathedral. And uh, so they, they could have a better grade and they have that, uh, you know, the streetcar run up through that. Um, and then in later, when then when the streetcar system was decommissioned, that was left. Uh, you know, the tunnel was abandoned, and homeless people lived in it uh, for years. And then they kicked them out and made an, a, an effort to even seal it even better. Uh, but as I understand from you know hearing the chatter, and well, I haven't been in there in years. Apparently, it is still you can still get into the old Selby streetcar tunnel if you know. You know what hole, what chink in the masonry uh, to go through. But I think a lot of the people who go in there don't realize is that they're only seeing a short segment of the original. So the original tunnel was much longer. And I remember when I went in there some years ago, and I could get in there, it was uh, it, you're not seeing the whole thing. It was you know I was only seeing part of it. Now, if you go down in the Trout Brook Valley of St. Paul, that's in Lower Town. That's the major stream that, that irrigates Lower Town. Um, there are some train tunnels down there that, you know, that remind me of the ones in New York City. Um, you know, they're on, the, the tunnels are long enough. You can get in the dark for a while. Um, and uh, those, the, the Tropebrook Valley is a, uh, a, a mecca for the homeless. Um, and I know that because, you know, I, I worked at the DNR and you could, and DNR is right there on the banks of Trout Brook. You can look down from the windows and just see these homeless communities down there, people walking back there just, you know, day and night. So they, they do, the, the homeless community does use those, uh, those rail tunnels. They do, you know, walk through them and, um, you know, just like they do in New York City, I guess. And um, so that's, that's, but, it, you know, it's a little, a little piece of New York City, uh, the Big Apple right here uh, in St. Paul. 
back momentarily. And we have returned. So we, we've spent a lot of time in St. Paul here already. We, we should probably talk about Minneapolis too. Uh, it's got plenty of its own caves. Uh, what are your favorite caves in Minneapolis? Yeah, so, well, th- that's an easy one. Yeah, Sheik's Cave under the old Sheik's nightclub. Uh, the, the the caves under Minneapolis are different than the ones under St. Paul. Most of the caves in St. Paul are these, you know, they're like Wabasha Street Caves. They are these old mushroom caves that are these passages, these artificial passages that just go in straight from the river bluffs. Um, and then they did end, and many times connected by cross cuts with similar parallel passages to either side. But it's it's a very definite uh, sort of pattern. And even with our um, our natural caves, Fountain Cave and Carver's Cave, they're kind of tubular in nature. It's just the way the water flow pattern that created them. But Minneapolis, it's different. These caves are very difficult to access. Um, I spent years trying to figure out how to go get into Sheik's Cave, which is located uh, 75 feet below street level at approximately where at uh, 4th Street and Marquette would be a good intersection. But, but this underlies like a half a city block. And, and um, this is a, um, it's not it's it, it's not uh, a natural cave. It's not an artificial cave. It is what we call an anthropogenic cave, or one that was. Um, it's there because of human activities, but it was not in an intentional cave. Uh, what happened in 1889? They began digging the deep level sewer trunk line under Minneapolis to drain all the raw sewage from from the downtown area into the Mississippi River. That's a pleasant thought, isn't it? Um, and <laughs> this tunnel, it's this tunnel formed a low a lower base level where water could you know towards which water could run and because of that there there were a, some very large washout caves that that sort of that were formed as a result of the carving of this tunnel. Um, and w- the largest of those by far is um, called Sheik's Cave. And again, because uh, I, the, you, it, was the, it was the Sheik's nightclub for years. I think it's been renamed recently or said something else. But um, I was fascinated with this cave because the stories of uh, how it was discovered uh, in, in 1904, the sewer workers, you know, and they, 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 they were working with their picks uh, in the dark, and then they struck into this immense void down there. Uh, and, they, you know, they described the, the, the seeing these pristine waterfalls and um, inside the cave and springs. And so I thought, oh, man, I, I just really want to see this place. Um so I, I, in the early 90s, I walked all through the Minneapolis storm drain tunnels um, and trying to find a way to, to enter, to get into this cave. But I, I couldn't find, there, there was no, um, there, there was no direct connection between the, the Minneapolis storm drains and this, this huge 
uh, cave underneath until one day in the late 90s, I was walking through those those same storm drains that I'd been in many times before. Um, and me and the fellow I was with, we noticed that there had been an enormous collapse in the system. It's like there's uh, the, the floor had dropped out of one of these storm drains. And when you got out, when you went through that floor, crawled down through that opening you could get into a sandstone space that allowed you to access the cave and it took some time but we were able to get into the cave and uh, i posted a uh, it's a one hour video uh, about this a sheik's cave on my youtube channel so it was we did it on uh, this is uh in the year 2000 we did it on vhs tape and you know, I, I converted that to digital and uploaded it to uh, to YouTube not all that long ago. And um, just so you could see that this these caves under Minneapolis are very difficult to get to. Unlike the ones in St. Paul, where you just walk in from the river or do a little bit of digging, um, these caves are like you know you have to it's an hours long process to get them you're walking through tunnels you know climbing up through voids going down through shafts uh and it's a very complicated operation uh to get there and so that that's just one example sheik's cave um and you know it's it's a very complicated cave it's a sandstone maze it's completely unlike carver's cave or fountain cave which would be the nearest comparison um just because of its uh its complex its three-dimensional complexity and what they did in the in the 19 what they know it was in 1907 they built an entire system of concrete piers down there to support the ceiling of the cave. They thought this this cave was getting so big. This washout cave was getting so big that it might, you know, the building, the buildings above might collapse. And indeed, you know, we talked about the collapse in St. Paul. But uh, if this one got big enough, if this cave grew anymore, like to encompass like entire city blocks, there could be a real possibility that that would lead to like a mega sinkhole in downtown Minneapolis uh, at that location. But I think owing to all these piers, these concrete piers and so on, they've, they've kind of stabilized, they've stabilized the, the walls of the cave so that it, that it wouldn't grow. But like Sheik's Cave is just one of them. There's also Shoot's Cave on the other side of the river down under, you know, what is approximately St. Anthony, Maine. Um, and that, that one is uh, really, I, it's a fond memory for me because I, it is, it's, a, it's what we call a well-decorated cave. Um, when you're in these sandstone caves under the Twin Cities, you don't see like stalactites and stalagmites like you do in a lot of these, uh, you know, commercial caves around the nation. Uh, where they, you know, they they make a point of pointing of pointing out, and you know, all the they're, they're beautiful cave formations. Uh, but Shoots Cave is the one exception. Uh, it has it is is just coated with this flowstone, this mineral deposit that's you know like stalagmite, and there are these crystal pools of water and cave pearls in there, and 
it's all very colorful. It's like, it's all state. There's like this, this red and orange and yellowish staining, uh, from the, just from the iron in the groundwater. Uh, and it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very wet, but you know, very unusual, um, kind of, uh, cave. And, uh, and again, it, it's not very easy to get into that cave. It, you know, when I initially went in there, it was in the late eighties. I had, to, uh, it, it really took me some, I, it, it took a lot of prospecting down there under the Pillsbury a mill to find the entrance. And I did, I should say, I did get permission from the people at the Pillsbury a mill. I did talk. That's when it was actually, actually a mill. They were, they were still milling flour and I went and talked to the, you know, the head miller or whatever there. And, uh, and he showed me some maps of the cave and said, yeah, I was okay. If I went down there again, this is a response that you wouldn't get nowadays. I it just, I, for liability purposes and so on, I, I can't see that happening. Hmm. So you talked about, uh, being freaked out a little with the beaver in Carver's cave. Have you ever been in an especially terrifying situation in a Minnesota cave, one that you thought you might not get out of? I guess the the, the chief fear with the, the caves that I've described is either uh, the sewer gas or drowning. Um, because the, the final chapter in Subterranean Twin Cities uh, describes a trip to uh, the so-called Channel Rock Cavern under Minneapolis. It's kind of like under the Longfellow neighborhood. Um, and the only way, that, again, these are, you, they're very, it's very complicated to get to them. Um, and this, this one in particular involved a long transit of a sanitary sewer. And a sanitary sewer is, of course, the one that has raw sewage in it. Uh, and, the disconcerting thing is when we got in the, you know, we had, we had waiters and the, the gentleman who accompanied me, you're wearing waiters, but this, this ton of, what was disconcerting is that the level of, of, of sewage in there would suddenly switch. It would suddenly change, um, uh, like, uh, you know, over a short period of time. And when I initially got in there, it freaked me out, and I and I exited right away. I thought, you know, because this thing is just going to fill right up, because the tunnel is six feet high, and you know, and if you're in waist deep sewage, and suddenly it comes up, you know, within a matter of minutes, comes up to your chest, it's of a concern. Um, and so I exited, and I, you know, finally got to be well. We're not, we're going to go in the middle of the night to this cave because with sewage. When you're walking through human sewage, not to be too too delicate of a point on the matter, when you're walking through human sewage, the sewage is always least in the middle of the night because people are, you know, obviously people are sleeping, and so there's not all that much. So if a if a tunnel is going to be a, if a, a sanitary sewer is going to be safe at all, it's going to be in the middle of the night. Uh, when there's a has the least flow volume, and that proved to be the case here. But the other thing is the sewer gas aspect. Um, what uh, you know, even small amounts of hydrogen sulfide, which is that rotten egg gas, uh, is 
you know, that can be deadly. And one after another, after another report in, you know, I read in like um, these journals, these professional journals about sewer construction, talk about, oh, you know, we had some people die, uh, you know, died of, uh, you know, died of sewer gas inhalation and all this kind of thing. And uh, so, when you we wore respirators just kind of block out the odor but a respirator that doesn't that can't filter out hydrogen sulfide i mean it's it's a gas in the air you know this little you know it can filter out larger particulates uh and and, and so the respirator would filter out like droplets and, and that kind of thing um but so the sewer gas was a big concern and i guess we had somebody who uh had went and got one of those uh, um, four gas meters that similar to what the fire department uses, so you can you know see if a space is safe to enter. Uh, and we tried that on a few trips, and what we found, unfortunately, is that the that this meter was beeping so constantly that it just became an annoyance, and we just shut it off. Um, it would <laughs> <laughs> so it's like uh, when. I guess the conclusion I came to ultimately is that if there's good, if there's a good strong air current in the tunnel, even if it smells bad, you're okay. Uh, the the ventilation aspect is essential. So if I went into something that smelled really bad and it, bad and it was stagnant, I, that's it. I'm leaving. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna continue at all. And when you want to go into these long trunk sewer lines, um, like the ones that led to Channel Rock Caverns, in which I describe in the book, the air was just blasting through those like crazy. So I think the ventilation was actually pretty good, even though it didn't smell didn't smell great. So I would say those are sort of the, those are like the, you know, the real fear. As far as getting lost, I have gotten lost in caves where I thought we got in there, got twisted around, thought, I have no idea how I got here. Um, that has happened to me in Minnesota caves, but those are natural caves like Kruger's Cave in southeastern Minnesota. It's down by the town of Plainview. Um, and it's a really tight labyrinth natural labyrinth in dolomite which is you know a kind of uh it's a magnesium limestone and there's all kinds of like boys it's a it's a, i guess uh boy scouts use it a lot as like maybe there's some sort of bad caving badge or something you can earn as a boy scout and so it's got all these strings running through it and, and i thought why are these you know why do they need strings and you know, to, to, you know, they shouldn't, they shouldn't need, but I got back in there and got lost myself and figured out, okay, I mean, well, maybe a string would have been better than nothing here. Uh, one of the things that I use in, in, uh, in caves to, if, if a cave is really complicated and I'm afraid I might get lost in the spies of a natural cave, or artificial cave, whatever, I have these, a whole bunch of little, uh, reflector stick type things so they have this this high reflectance and so i can when i'm entering the cave i can leave these at passage junctions um and then this can where, where i'll be able to see them for in my in my light will illuminate them down and you know hundreds of feet away and then i can i can tell which passage i've been in and then when i when i'm leaving i can follow those out and then pick them up as i leave so i'm not like leaving all these markers in there I'll pick them up as I as I exit the cave, 
and I found that that is really helps to reduce confusion in uh, in complicated uh, maze caves. Interesting. So uh, Jesse James. Ah yes, yes. I would love it if you could tell us about the Jesse James Caves in southern Minnesota. Yeah, so Minnesota is blessed, if you want to use those that term, with um, two Jesse James Caves. Uh, and what I found uh, in in my travels uh, around the U.S. Uh, is that there are that that's just two of many Jesse James caves around the nation. Um, Jesse James, if if you listen to uh, what you what people tell you at at show caves and commercial caves, uh, Jesse James uh, must have spent a lot of time underground. You know, he, you know hiding from the law, uh, the place to to hide his loot. A place for the gang to gather and um, you know plan bank robberies and that sort of thing. But I've you know I, I got interested in the, this this sort of subterranean aspect of Jesse James, but I was disconcerted when I got to when I started. I read some full length biographies of Jesse James, and I by that I mean you know like five hundred pagers, um, and you know I. I Watch the the some very lengthy biographies of Jesse James on YouTube, like the one the American Experience. It's an hour long program. And you know what? They never once mentioned caves. They and <laughs> they, and so I'm, I was kind of mystified by this. Um, and so I, I decided to investigate our local Jesse James caves. Um, and see if there was was any credibility in those. So just so that people know where these are, where they were. Well, they're they're both there, but um, non-functional, so to speak. Um, probably the best known Jesse James cave uh, in southern Minnesota was a mile south of Saint Peter. Uh, and if you're traveling along U.S. 169, uh, as you're going uh, south from St. Peter, Minnesota, uh, you'll see all kinds of holes in the in the sandstone bluffs. Now, people have told me this again. Hey, you've seen those holes? Yes, yes, I've seen those holes down there. <laughs> um, that's all that remains of the or probably the most spectacular Jesse James cave that we had in the state. And it was run by a, it was a commercial operation or a show cave that was run by a fellow by the name of Charlie Meyer. Um, and he was a stonemason uh, in, the, in the stone quarries in the Minnesota River Valley. Um, and he decided, he bought some property uh, uh, along the Minnesota River, and he decided that he was going to carve out uh, a, a Jesse James-themed cave. And so he did that, and a, the amount of effort this guy put into it is, is just extraordinary. Uh, he, he not only carved like uh, made, did a, like a sculpture or carving in the soft sandstone walls of Jesse James himself, but he carved all the members of the James Younger gang. So there's like eight total. So he carved all of them. Uh, and then that 
Uh, and then, you know, he added color to these. Um, and then he uh, carved all kinds of other, I mean, it's, it's like a waxwork museum, but not wax, it's sand. It's a sandwork museum, I guess. When was this? So he bought the land in 1930, and he, he began, you know, doing this just as a hobby. This is something he's kind of bored. And, and then, you know, the neighbors around him got interested. Hey, Charlie, what you doing in there? And so then he got to charging people at first five cents and then later 25 cents to come in here. Uh, and uh, the, op it, the operation went until uh, 1954. So from 1930 uh, and they asked him at the time, you know, in 1954, when, when these beautiful, this beautiful work of art, essentially this sculpture garden, interior sculpture garden was destroyed. They said, Charlie, what, what you going to do with yourself now? You know, and he just told them, you know, uh, quite plainly, you know, I'm just going to go and kick the bucket. And he promptly did so two years later. I mean, it had just basically taken his life's, you know, this, this life, his life's work away from him. It had taken so much pleasure in, in, in showing this carve and doing these carvings and showing this cave uh, to people. Uh, the thing about it is that, uh, you know, there are, there are a few remnants of this cave still left. There were Originally seven caves, the highway department destroyed four, but the three that are left, I've examined them personally. Um, and I can tell you, they're not much. I mean, this is, they were not the main cave where the, the carvings were, because I, I went through them pretty thoroughly. They're just like these walking size uh, tunnels through sandstone. Uh, and over the years, water has seeped in, you know, cold groundwater has seeped in. So it's not even pleasant to go in them. You're in this, you're in, you know, like this knee deep uh, cold water and you're crouching, kind of making your way through there. Um, and so the, the remnants that are left are just I mean, nothing compared to this, what, you know, the original caves had been. But the most important part about this is that it was all based on a what I regard as a fallacious story. Now, Jesse James, it was all connected with the, the known um, robbery of the, the Northfield Bank in 1876. You know, Jesse James was had been robbing banks in Missouri and, you know, other southern states uh, for many years. Uh, before this, and he decided that he would make a foray uh, into Minnesota. And there was even talk of him going up into Canada and robbing some banks up there. It was getting kind of like, you know, kind of like branching out here. But when I, when I examined the biography of Jesse James and compared it with the story that was told at the caves, it's pretty clear to me that the, 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 story, the story just doesn't work. Now, Charlie got the story about the, 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 the whole story about Jesse James having gone into a cave around there uh, in that vicinity 
from a fellow by the name of Forsberg, who claimed to have actually witnessed it as a child. Uh, and so he, he kind of based his whole cave spiel, his whole you know cave tour on that. And what this what this guy Forsberg said is that he met some fellows in a cave there south of St. Peter, and they all had guns. And um, and then a few days later, the Northfield bank robbery took place, and he and he he realized that oh that had been Jesse James that I saw in that cave, and so he kept telling the story and so on. But when you actually compare it with uh, the you know a detailed reconstruction of the robbery, the Northfield uh, Minnesota robbery, uh, what you find out is that. The, on the way to the cave, Jesse James, the, the eight members of the James Younger gang, they traveled in twos. Okay, so the gang was not together in one place like that before they got to Northfield. They traveled in twos, and they traveled quite openly under aliases as a businessman and so on, and they stayed at inns. They didn't stay in caves. So the whole notion that they would have been in a cave before the robbery, it's just, it doesn't really match up uh, with the information that that we know about the robbery. Now, I said that, that there are two Jesse James caves in Minnesota. Uh, and the second one, interestingly enough, to be symmetrical, that one kind of matches up better with the escape phase of the robbery. Um, a little better than the this this you know has has a better claim than 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 this other cave to actually having been occupied uh, by Jesse James because it was along the line that uh, that he probably took and going as he you know escaping out to South Dakota so after after the failure of the north of the robbery of the Northfield Bank uh, you know the members of the gang. Uh, they went together for a while, and then they finally split up. Uh, the younger brothers uh, were captured near Medelia, and they went to Stillwater Prison. Three other members of the gang had been shot dead in Northfield during the robbery. Uh, and so that just left Jesse and his brother Frank. And they made their way out towards, uh, they were known to have gone through Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and lo and behold, that's right where the uh, pretty much right where the other Jess, known Jesse James Cave is. It's at the um, what is now Blue Mounds State Park at Laverne, Minnesota, and that's right across the border from Sioux Falls. Um, and so I have an old postcard, which is reproduced in the book uh, Minnesota Caves, uh, which shows this this fissure in the the quartzite bedrock there where that they would have uh, you know supposedly hid during their flight away from uh, you know their their flight from justice and one of the significant things one of the the gang members said years later when he was being interviewed about uh, caves if somebody asked him, did you, you know, did you, what caves did you use to hide in? Uh, and he said significantly uh, that you'd have to be a darn fool uh, to hide in a cave 
when you're fleeing the law because it is a trap. Um, because you know, you're, it, you go in there, you're stuck in there and you can be, uh, you know, you can be easily captured. Uh, and see what the thing with this, uh, this crevice out in, in Blue Mound State Park is that it is a, um, it's a long linear feature, uh, and it's, you can go either way. So you could post a lookout and if the, you know, if the posse is coming from you in one direction, you could just leave, uh, through the crevice in the other way and vice versa. So you're not trapped in there. So I think from, from that standpoint that it fits better their criteria for what is a, a, a safe hideout. And from the fact that it was along the direct line of retreat, of the uh, the James brothers after the the botched robbery, I think actually this second Jesse James cave in western Minnesota has a better title than the one south uh, of St. Peter. But that said, you know, even though it's marked as Jesse James Cave on the postcard, this old postcard, I um, had some correspondence with the um, with the the park ranger um, over at Blue Mound State Park, where this would be today. Um, and he said he'd never heard of such, he said he'd never heard of Jesse James in association with with any features uh, in that state park. Um, and so uh, I guess as, as a legend, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of died out locally. But obviously, at one time, they thought enough of it to put it on a postcard. Ah, oh, interesting story. Wow. So, so we haven't really talked about caves too much outside of the metro area, uh, besides the Jesse James Caves. But but you cover in your book lots of caves in, in outstate Minnesota. What is the most jaw-droppingly beautiful cave you have ever been in? Well, of course... When you talk to a caver about beauty in a cave, their mind usually runs towards which cave has the best formations, you know, the best mineral deposits in terms of stalactites and stalagmites and flowstone and, you know, crystalline pools and so on. And, you know, that is, that's probably, you're probably going to conclude that that's Mystery Cave. That's the longest natural cave in the state at over 12 miles. And it's the focus of the Forestville Mystery Cave State Park, which is, you know, run by the, the tours run by the DNR down there. And um, there's a particular part of Mystery Cave called Garden of the Gods. And this is the place that's most chock full of, you know, these flowstone formations and the stalactites and stalagmites. And I, that, that, I guess, would probably, in terms of cave formations, that's going to be uh, what people would cite as, you know, probably like the you know, one of the most beautiful caves in, in Minnesota. What is the most uh, beautiful cave, in your opinion, that's not widely known, but very well, special yes, to you? Yeah, I mentioned one um, that was the the Chutes Cave under Minneapolis. It was hard to believe there could, there could be this accumulation of beautiful mineral deposits, you know, and just these tiers and of 
you know, these water-laid tiers of and levels of uh, flowstone and calcite formations uh, down under a city. I mean, who would have expected that? That was when I came across that in in 1989. Um, it was for me that was just a, you know a heartwarming experience, and it, it was a real encouragement to me at the time because I had just gotten into caving at this time. And I was looking for a local cave, you know, as I said, like a geology project. And when I mentioned Shoots Cave, um, the other people in the, the existing Minnesota Cave Club at the time, which is still around, the, the, the people who had some knowledge said, you know, that that was just a, that cave was a hoax cave and it never existed. No, so no one had been there. And I, and I kind of put these clues together. And so it was putting, I put these clues together, came across this, got the permissions, came across this cave. And it was the best decorated cave for hundreds of miles around here. And, and again, in terms of the, you know, just the, the, the beautiful mineral deposits and flowstone in there. And that was, that was, uh, you know, really special moment for me a special cave for me and here it was you know right down basically kind of tucked away in the sewer system under minneapolis what about uh prehistoric caves in minnesota oh yeah we've got uh plenty of those and um i t i have like a whole chapter devoted to prehistoric caves and when i when i talk about prehistoric caves I mean, of course, that caves that have prehistoric um, either artifacts or carvings or remains in them, in the sense that the caves were there before history. Well, they were all there, so that's not a you know that's not a qualifier. You know, it, in a sense, Carver's Cave was a prehistoric cave because it had uh, at one time before the the entrance of it was destroyed by the railroads, it had. Petroglyphs or Native American carvings um, there, and so in that sense, it was kind of you know it was prehistoric. These caves with carvings go; all, you can find these caves all along the Mississippi River, running from the Twin Cities, you know, down to the Iowa border and beyond, um, with uh, carvings of thunderbirds and uh, fish. Um, and sometimes human faces. Um, these were all carved and thought to have been carved in prehistoric times, you know, before European uh, contact. In other cases, we have caves that had uh, Native American remains in them, uh, at least before they were, you know, defiled or, you know, removed by uh, landowners or, you know, taken as trophies. Um, you know, a good example is the catacombs of Yucatan, uh, down near the town of Yucatan, Minnesota. And if you don't near know where Yucatan, Minnesota is, it's right next to the town of Black Hammer, Minnesota. And if you don't know where that is, I don't know how to help you. Well, no, it's kind of, <laughs> you know, it's like all these little towns with interesting names, you know, but it's down in Fillmore County. Uh, and it's the catacombs of Yucatan, it's a catacomb not in the sense of being immensely complicated as, as, that, as the, you know, that word would usually connote, 
but in this case it actually had native american remains and it was used as a burial cave um, but those remains were dispersed and we don't have them they were dispersed by the early settlers probably hey oh you know it just hey there's a skull you know you know take that put it on their mantelpiece and it's lost um another cave uh which i relocated uh in 2005 is lundberg cave this is near maple springs along the maple uh maple springs along the mississippi river um down the vicinity of winona and this was a Native American burial cave. Again, the remains have been long since removed by early landowners. So it's not its not like you're going in there. It's not like one of those Hawaiian lava tubes where you are you go in there and there's, you know, there's bodies laying there and there's a curse and all that. I mean, the bodies have long since been removed by people unknown but uh sometimes they're they're there long enough to be documented another good uh, good example is knapp's cave which is the largest cave on the saint croix river um and it's just across from osceola wisconsin and the science museum of minnesota did a dig there in 1951 and unearthed a lot of native american remains pottery and so on and that cave had a long occupation you know for native americans lived in that cave for thousands of years and it's obvious why i mean it looks out over a bend the cedar bend of the of the saint croix river lots of aquatic resources there fishing uh, and so on. And then interestingly enough, in later years, it was used by the Swedes. Uh, I think there was a, a big gap in there between the times Indians used it in the sweat. Uh, you know, we had a heavy Swedish immigration around Scandia, Minnesota, as the name would suggest. Uh, and the Scandinavian settlers, when they'd arrive here during pioneer days, and they, if they came, you know, happened to get here in the middle of winter when it really wasn't feasible to set a cabin up, they would just go down there and stay in the cave, and then till spring, and then they, you know, then they'd come up on the surface again, up on the main level, and then you know could, you know, go live in a house like everyone else. So it, it's like it's had these multiple levels of occupancy you know, through the centuries, through, indeed, through the millennia. And so those are, those are some good examples of prehistoric caves in Minnesota. Wow, fascinating. So this has been a lot of fun. As you've already said, people will contact you occasionally with a cave question. How can they connect with you? Yeah, so... All, all my books are linked uh, through my website. That's drgregbrick.com. And so that's D-R-G-R-E-G-B-R-I-C-K.com. And I have, I have, I have links to everything and, and you know, uh, uh, a blog there, uh, which need to add some more to that but um so that that's the best way that's usually the way that uh people contact me i have links to my youtube channel um occasionally i'll post some you know like the the whole story of the exploration of sheik's cave i'll post on there and you know the uh, a video of that and 
Uh, and if anyone, certainly I, I would, I would like to hear from anyone, like we discussed Jesse James cave here, you know, if, if, you know, I've gone around to the historical societies, nobody, you know, apart from photographs of the exterior of these caves, you know, the interior of Jesse James cave at St. Peter must've been pretty spectacular at one time with all these carvings. Somebody should have photographs of it. And, I've never encountered any. So if, if any listeners out there know of photographs, you know, taken inside that cave back in the day, back before it was destroyed, wow, I'd, I'd be really interested in, in hearing about that. Uh, I do have one more question. I worked at Historic Fort Snelling um, for a number of years. So I'm, I'm very interested in that, that little section of St. Paul. Do you have any interesting cave stories? regarding Fort Snelling? Um, the, yes, the, there is uh, in, another book I publish uh, along with Doris Green is called Minnesota Underground. It's um, it's a guide. Minnesota Caves, the book we've been talking about is kind of a, it's a, a, you know, a book of, you know, a collection of stories about Minnesota Caves, whereas Minnesota Underground is more of a practical guide of places to visit and there is an entry for Fort Snelling in there and it talks about the uh, the tunnel that under that runs under Fort Snelling and that you can see from the the, the bike path that runs uh, at river level below the fort uh, the tunnel is sometimes open and it's sometimes closed uh, but there the story the rumor associated with that tunnel is that in the simplistic uh, imaginations of people, that was a tunnel that was dug by Indians trying to get into the fort, which is it's just nonsense. It's a, it's an old it's an abandoned utility tunnel. I mean, I went in there and I found what you know, like the remains of old cables and things. So it's it's, it's <laughs> but it, you know, it people <laughs> people have fit when when they see a cave, they have to try to fit it into us into the story into into some kind of narrative. Uh, you know, framework that they're familiar with. So it's a, you know, it becomes a cowboy and Indian thing. Uh, there was never, ever an attack on Fort Snelling. <laughs> no, 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 it was, it was ridiculous. Well, well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. I, you know, I'm just, I'm happy to get these stories out there. Um, I, you know, I feel frustrated a lot of times when I'm on, you know, I'm a member like everyone else of many Facebook groups and, you know, people ask, uh, you know, oh, has anyone heard of anything about Carver's Cave in all these years or Fountain Cave or any of these other caves? It's like, I just feel like, it's like, yes, yeah, <laughs> there's a whole book about it. I wrote this, published this book about years ago. Just go get that book and you're, you know, there, there, there it is. And. Um, so I'm, I'm so happy to, to, you know, to share that information with people. Absolutely. And you've got a whole series of books that answer just about any question anyone could ever have about caves in Minnesota. Yeah, running up to the textbook category. Um, the uh, I, uh, Along with the whole series of contributors, I published Caves and Cars of the Upper Midwest. Um, but that that is a, a quite a slab of a textbook that costs um, 130 euros. Yes, it is a, a European publisher, and um, it is 
I, I must tell you, when I even when I read some of what people had contributed to this book, I started the. It, some of these chapters are like it's like reading a chemistry book. It's like there's so many chemical equations. I I, I sometimes scratch my head, but so there's that. There's so there's there's something for everyone. I'm trying to say here. Well, thank you again. Well, thank you very much. Again, I have been speaking to Greg Brick. His book is called Minnesota Caves, History and Lore. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. Until next time.